0: Thank you for filling out that survey. Thank you for following along with the announcements. Let's jump into the Word of God. Are you ready? Let's go. Uh, this week, today, we are kicking off a brand new series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, this series is called God, the Church, and Everything in Between. I'm really excited for this. So why are we studying the book of Ephesians? Well, for starters, uh, Ephesians deepens our understanding of the gospel. And as our understanding of the gospel deepens, so does our worship of God. Uh, also, uh, in this day and age, we're, we're seeing superficial Christianity being exposed left and right. And it seems like now more than ever, we need a deep understanding of the gospel. The second reason why we're studying Ephesians is because Ephesians magnifies the importance and the beauty Of the church. And some scholars would argue, perhaps more than any other New Testament letter, Ephesians lifts up the importance and the beauty of the church. Uh, In Ephesians, we see how God uh, and the church are central to his purposes. The third reason is well, Ephesians is an incredible summary of many of the many important themes that Paul discusses at length in some of his longer letters, such as Romans and Corinthians. But the thing about Ephesians is that it's awesome. It's short, it's sweet, but it's packed with immeasurable riches. Now, one thing that makes this letter unique is how general it is. It's a very general letter. The reason I say that is because the Apostle Paul, usually when he writes a letter, He's writing, addressing a very specific and serious concern that afflicted the early church. But in this letter, Paul's not addressing any specific concern. He's not addressing any specific issue or sin or idolatry or false philosophy that creeped into the church. He's actually really general. In fact, this letter is almost uh, considered a manifesto for the church because in this letter... Paul develops this robust theology about who God is and what he has done for us and how we ought to live. It gets real practical and it answers some of the most common questions to the Christian life. The first three chapters, we get this bird's eye view of God and what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And in the last three chapters, we're narrowing in, zooming in on on practical living And so there's a few implications that arise for how we ought to live in light of being reconciled to God. So as we journey through this book, we will discuss and learn more about God, the church, and a few key themes that arise in this letter. So this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. It says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. With the remaining time that we have together, I want to unpack two key subjects, two, two themes that are found in this set of verses. The first one is the will of God, and the second one is faith in Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Father, there are so many distractions out there and in here. And Lord, I pray that you would silence those distractions and help us set our eyes on you. Knowing that when we see Jesus, things change in our life. When we see Jesus, we're transformed. And the more we see Jesus, the more we become like him. Holy Spirit, help us to set our hearts On you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, About seven years ago in in 2013, uh, Pastor Peter, our founding pastor, uh, and Pastor Shad from from Family Life Austin uh, invited me uh, to join them on this ministry trip they were doing down in Monterey, Texas. About a six hour drive from here. So what we were going there to do is partner with our local Every Nation church there and Peter was going to lead an evangelism training uh, in Spanish, so if you know Peter, he is an evangelism machine, and he 's also fluent in Spanish. so when you put those two things together, you have a rogue white man for the gospel it 's incredible to see he was unstoppable, uh, at times frustrating, and uh, we actually got kicked off campus that that day because he was he was that crazy, uh, and so we were there on campus, and we were partnering alongside the the church and the campus ministry there um, and, and I, I was just a year and a half in the faith. I didn't really bring much to the table except I was just there to, to kind of watch Hattie. Which she was four at the time and uh, translate for Pastor Shad. And so that's all I did. And so one night uh, we do this huge worship night. Pastor Shadrick is preaching on freedom in Christ. Uh, at the end of the service, he does this altar call and something happens that I never have seen before in my life. Every single person in that room gets up and comes to the front. And we were blown away. I'm like, Shad, how are you doing this? I had, I had no context for this. And, and so Shad starts praying for every single person in the room. And he starts prophesying over certain individuals, encouraging them from the word of God. And, and people are just rocked by the power and the presence of God. And so I'm there with Shad. And, and, and he's praying over people. And I'm, I'm translating to the best of my ability. And, and one couple comes up. And Shad asked me to translate uh, this this statement that he was seeing. He said, Alberto, I want you to tell this couple right here that their relationship is as strong as two oxes. And, And for the life of me, I could not figure out how to translate the word ox in Spanish. I just couldn't figure it out. And Shad's looking at me and he says, Alberto, tell this couple that their relationship is as strong as two oxes. And I'm thinking to myself, I I do not know, I've never said this word in Spanish, I don't know what to say. Uh, So this is what I ended up saying. I said, tu relación es fuerte como dos vacas. Some of you are are laughing because uh, you realize how off I was. Uh, I, I misspoke big time. What I ended up saying was, your relationship is as strong as two cows. And uh, it, it didn't translate the same, and it didn't help that this couple was on the heavier set. So they look at each other, they look at Shadrick, they look at me, and, and to this day, I never told Shadrick that I blundered. I didn't tell him what I said. Shadrick was just like, oh, I guess I'm, I'm just off right now. Uh, and, 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 and yeah, it was a huge blunder, a huge mistake, and well, we just kept on moving. And, uh, and to this day, I had to Google how to translate ox, and I'm never going to do that again. Uh, huge blunder, but we kept praying. And, and people were coming up to us for prayer. And what was so fascinating, what was so interesting, is that ev- almost half the room that came up to us for prayer had this one prayer request that blew my mind. Almost half the room came up to us, and they would ask Shadrick to pray this simple question, this request. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? It became such a familiar question that when uh, people were coming up to Shadrach, he, he knew what they were saying because he heard it over and over again. People were asking, what is God's will for my life? And, and I, was, I was young and I was like, yeah, Shad, what is God's will for my life? I looked over at him like, what are you gonna say to them? Uh, I wanna know. And uh, it's interesting because uh, this question, when we really think about it, when we're honest with ourselves, what we're asking more often than not is we're saying, God, what is, what is the blueprint for my life? What is, what is the five-year plan? Uh, what does the future hold? If it's awesome, great, I'm totally on board. If it's not, let, let's renegotiate the terms here. And when we ask a question like, what is God's will or what is God's purpose for my life? It's kind of a tricky question to answer. And the reason why is because we're approaching it with a flawed premise. And as a result, we end up with a flawed understanding of what God is doing in our lives. You see, when we ask, what is God's will for my life? We're approaching it with a flawed premise because for starters... It's not your life. You don't own your life. God does. And when we say things like, it's my life and I'm going to do whatever I want with it, we're going to end up extremely disappointed when we fail to recognize what God's will is in our life. Because we've started with the wrong premise. And we hear this all the time. It's my life, and I'm going to do whatever I want with it. Uh, We've said it. I've said it. And in this phrase, in many ways, is the modern equivalent of one we find scattered all over the Old Testament. Quote, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, If you have any familiarity with the Bible, anytime you see this verse, anytime you see this statement, what immediately follows is a detailed account of the self-inflicted hurt and brokenness the people of God experience. And this internal hurt and brokenness turns into external chaos and destruction. You see, when we claim that our lives are our own, and we do what is right in our own lives, we actually create a world of brokenness and chaos that will spill over into the world around us and further advance the brokenness and chaos we see out here. Why? Because we're not created to build empires and kingdoms that are all about us. You see, when we stake a claim on our own lives and seek to build our own kingdom... And our own empires were actually partnering with the enemy's plan for our life. Why? Because nothing creates more division and hostility in the kingdom of God than individuals building their own kingdoms and their own empires. You see, we're called to be a family. We're called to be a community, a people that lifts up the name of Jesus and pursues his plans and his purposes, not our own. We're we're simply created, not the creator. And we think things like, it's my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, 50s, 60s plus years of my life. It's, It's my money. It's my family, my desires, my career. We claim all this as mine, and then we say, God, what do you want to do with all that is mine? God, what do you want to do with my life? Instead of it being about God, we make it about ourselves. You see, the correct premise is that everything belongs to God. So we begin to ask God, what do you want done with what is already yours? What do you want me to become in Christ? What do you want me to grow in and what do you want me to put to death? You see, instead of asking God, what is your will for my life? We should ask, God, what is your will? What are you doing? Where are you moving? Which direction are you going in? And when you begin to ask that question, then it becomes about you partnering with what God is already doing, than making it about yourself. And living a life with God and for God is far more satisfying than living a life for yourself and building your own kingdom and your own empire. God, what is it that you're going to do with or without me? What is your will? And when we discover what that is, we can attach our lives to that. And that becomes our purpose. Partnering with God and moving in his direction. Rather than swaying God to go in our direction. And let's consider the background for a brief moment. Uh, The author of this text wasn't always moving in the direction of God. In fact, uh, he was violently opposing the way of God and moving in the exact opposite direction. In Acts chapter 9, we see a glimpse of Paul's life, and he is a violent persecutor of the church. In Acts 9, 1 through 2, uh, it says this, But Saul, and this is the Hebrew name for Paul. Uh, Paul is Greek and Saul is Hebrew. It's important to point out that, 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 Paul's, that Saul's name never changed. He, he didn't become Paul. He was always Paul. Uh, It's a dual name. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, verse 2, and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, to the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see, this was the direction that Paul was moving in violently persecuting and oppressing the early church. And he did this with great zeal, great passion. Paul persecuted the early church. And in fact, Paul identified as a Pharisee. He identified with the early religious group that radically opposed Jesus and his ways. In fact, it was this religious group that played a crucial part in sentencing him to death on a Roman cross, You see, they thought that if they could kill Jesus, they could kill the movement. But what we discover in the book of Acts is that this movement is alive and it's rapidly growing. And Paul is trying to put an end to it. And in his attempt to bring something to an end, something brand new begins. God radically redirects this man's life. You see, when we continue reading in Acts chapter 9, this is what it says in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is so good. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. You see, when we move in the direction of God, when we pursue the will of God, God tells us what to do. We don't tell God what we want to do, He directs our lives. And immediately, We skip down to verse 20. So so Paul spends some days in the city, and we fast forward to verse 20, and it says this Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And everyone who heard him was amazed, and they said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name of Jesus? Is not this the same guy? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The person that Paul tried to disprove radically encounters him, and now he lives his life testifying to who Jesus is and the wonderful work of God. And it confounded, it baffled everyone around them. You see, Paul was moving in one direction, and God radically redirected him despite him. Despite who Paul was and what he was doing. If there's anything that we can see from this, is that you don't have to be on the same page with God for him to transform you and do incredible things with your life. You don't need to know God's will for your life in order for him to perform his perfect will for your life. You see, when Paul was opposing God, God met him in the midst of that opposition and transformed his life. So what this means is that you can be in this place right now, and you can think that you're too far gone from God, but in reality, you are just a few steps away from encountering the king of the universe. That's how close and intimate and powerful our God is. Instantly, Paul's life became about Jesus. Paul's life ceased to become about himself and his purposes and his plans and immediately became about exalting and proclaiming who Jesus is. And this right here is living in God's will. When you live your life to make much of Jesus, you are in the will of God when your life becomes more about him and less about you. And this was the source of Paul's purpose and identity. Being in relationship with God. Living with God and living for God. And it's so interesting because culture, the world we live in, will say that purpose and identity is found in the external things. But the reality is that purpose and identity are connected to the spiritual dimensions of our lives. You see, purpose and identity is not found in our bank accounts. It is not found in earthly accomplishments. It is not found in in attaining an image of external beauty. It is not found in marriage. It is not found in relationships. Purpose and identity is not found in your home. It's not found in your kids' It is not found in the external things. Purpose and identity are found in Christ. Realizing God's will for your life is found in the internal thing. It is found in Christ. You see, there's nothing about the external world that has the power to make us come alive. There's nothing about the external world that can give us the purpose and identity that we desperately long for and seek for. But Christ in us, working through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, makes us come alive. And that's what we're called to. As verse 1 says, to be faithful in Christ. We're called to, to be in relationship with Christ. We're called to love God and be with Him. You see, we were created for a person and a purpose. When we go back to Genesis 1, that's why God created us. For him and to be in relationship with him. We were created for a person and for the purpose of being in union and in relationship with God. And this God-given mandate is short-lived. You know the story. Genesis 3, it's lost in the garden. Sin severs our relationship with God. Now the person has been lost, And now our purpose has been lost. And so what do we do? Instead of living for the person of God, we live for ourselves. We live for others. We live for external things that we believe are going to give us what we long for, that only a relationship with God can give us. Purpose, identity, security, satisfaction, hope, and love. Instead of living for the purpose of being in a relationship with God, we live for the fleeting purposes of this world. We live in this endless cycle of discovering our purpose and we call it a journey. There is no journey, you are in Christ. That is your purpose, to be in relationship with him. God created us for a person, and the purpose is relationship. And here's what's so incredible, is that everything flows from that place and back to that place. God has created us to love him and to live in a moment-by-moment relationship with him. John 17.3 says it this way, This is eternal life. That you may know the only true God, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life that you may know the only true God, Jesus Christ. To know, to be in intimate relationship with him. This is the highest quality of life. To know God and to be with him. And here's the beautiful thing about being called to be faithful in Christ, the beauty behind fulfilling God's will by being faithful to Jesus and being in relationship with him. This now becomes the place where you find all the affirmation, all the approval, all the worth, the feeling of fulfillment from accomplishing something great, you find it in Christ. And the reason why this is liberating is because you don't have to journey through life wasting your time and wasting your energy trying to discover why on earth God put you here, trying to look for identity and affirmation or approval in a career or a lifestyle or an earthly relationship when God has provided all those things for you in Christ Jesus. It's yours, freely given. And so now all of your efforts are directed toward enjoying God and training your heart and your mind to believe that these things that God says are true. That the things that we desperately long for are found in Christ. You see, this is so liberating because what this does is now you can set yourself up to to go pursue whatever it is that God has placed on your heart. Whether it's to become an actor, a singer, uh, an accountant, uh, an entrepreneur, a cop, whatever it is God has called you to do, you can freely pursue it. And if you fail epically, you can still stand in Christ, knowing that your value and your worth and your identity was never in that career, but it was in a calling to Jesus. And now you're free to pursue God and enjoy Him and do whatever you want within the boundaries of godliness. Got to insert that one there because I know what some of y'all are thinking. I'm going to go rob a bank in Jesus' name. Student loans be gone. Come on. Can't do that one. But they're not in heaven. Praise God. Come on. Debt free in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Let's see. So God is calling you to order your life around him. God is calling you to structure and arrange your life around him where he becomes uh, the central purpose of your life and he guides and he directs your steps according to his grace and goodness. And you see, when we order and when we structure our life around him, in doing so, God will order and structure our life out there. He'll do it. When we order and structure our life around God, God will order and structure our life out there. And we see this in the life of Christ. Jesus is ordering and structuring and arranging his life around the Father. Modeling faithfulness, showing us how we are to live and what we're called to live up to we see Jesus model faithfulness and where does that take him? It takes him to the garden. It takes him to the cross. In fact, this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, verse 41 through 42. And Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them where he knelt down and prayed. Verse 42, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus structuring and ordering his life around God took him to unpleasant places, yet he was in the will of God. And oftentimes, God will take us, God's will will take us to unimaginable places so that God can do more than we can imagine through our lives for his glory. And we see this put on display. Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus takes the cup of wrath from the Father. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life, who never lost the person or the purpose became death and became sin so that we can be reconnected to the person of God for our purpose of being in relationship with him. Jesus, who knew no sin, became the righteousness of God so that we could find all of our value, all of our worth, all of the identity, affirmation, and approval that we desperately long for in a relationship with him and not other lesser idols. And this is the provision that Jesus has given us. Jesus goes to the cross and removes every single barrier that restricts us and keeps us from God. And we can come to the altar with arms wide open, unhindered access to God. I want to close with this short poem from American author and poet uh, Ella Wheeler Wilcox. It says this, One ship drives east, another drives west. With the self-same winds that blow, tis the set of the sails and not the gales, which tell us which way to go. One ship drives east and another drives west. With the self-same winds that blow, it is the set of the sails and not the gales, not the powerful wind. It's the set of the sails that tell us which way to go. A.W. Tozer commenting on this poem said, let us then set our sails in the will of God. If we do this, we will certainly find ourselves moving in the right direction no matter which way the wind blows. Let us then set our sails in the will of God. If we do this, no matter which way the wind blows, no matter where life carries us, we're moving in the right direction. Because we're in the will of God, God, our hearts are directed towards the will of God. We're willing ourselves to be in relationship and committed and faithful to him. When we are in Christ, no matter which way the wind blows, God will accomplish his will for our lives and move us in the direction that will form us into all that he's called us to be and in the direction that will deepen our love for him and our relationship with him. Let us embrace the person of Jesus. Let us enter into deep relationship and intimacy with him. And as we do so, God will move us in his direction. God will steer this ship and order our footsteps. And we can remain confident that he's a good father, that he's in control, and that he knows where he's taking us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Father, thank you that you are the divine author of all of history. And Lord, you are not writing the story that we believe is best for our lives, but you're writing and orchestrating the story that you know is best for our lives. And Lord, in the valleys and the mountaintops and the brokenness and chaos and the moments of joy and celebration, we remain confident that we can hope and remain secure because you are with us. And Lord, wherever the wind takes us, wherever we find our feet being ordered, the highest privilege is not the destination destination, but is being found with you. Lord, remind us of this beautiful truth as we go into this week. Lord, remind us that you have gone great lengths to restore us to the, perp- to the person in person, to the person of God and the purpose of being in relationship with you. Lord, help us walk in that. In Jesus' name.